Arthur Belpert and Kim Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. It's not only a contributor to 538 and Vice, but also a doctor of genes. It's Rob Arthur. Bobby Arthur. Rob Arthur is the guest for this edition of the program. Arthur discusses tribalism, kin selection, and the Chicago Cubs, and what those first two concepts have to do with the third thing, third pairs of noun, place and noun. Arthur's particularly well-suited to comment on those things, given both his scholarly pursuits and also his place of residence, which is Chicago itself. Arthur also discusses the bullpen revolution and whether it is in fact here, and also some of the dumbest decisions he's made. I did a couple of street races. That was really dumb. I would pull up to a stoplight, and there would be, like, another car there, and I'd rev the engine, they'd rev the engine, and then we'd just go for, you know, until the next couple stoplights. That amusing interval and other amusing intervals just like it in What's to Follow. What is not following at all is a sponsor's message. If there were a sponsor's message, of course, it would be from SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. However, there is not a sponsor's message, so instead we proceed directly to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraph Study. Who does it feature? Rob Arthur. Both of 538 and Vice, and when does it begin? Right now. It's hard uh, to avoid it um, if you're alive for 36 years. I don't know why you'd want to. Why you'd want to avoid it? Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I've noticed, uh, I've followed you a little bit, your experiences surrounding these playoffs, for example. I don't know uh, if you're a Cubs fan specifically, though. I know that the, the Cubs season is exciting for you, though. Yes, I am a Cubs fan specifically. You are? Okay. All right. And so uh, have you Have you always been a Cubs fan? Uh, yeah, as long as I can remember. I didn't grow up in Chicago, but my dad and that whole side of my family is from Chicago, so I sort of inherited my Cubs fandom from him. All right. So the, so what's happening right now is of uh, great personal interest to you? Indeed. Okay. And are you able to experience it as a fan? This is a thing, uh, a matter that sometimes will come up between people who spend quite a bit of time thinking about the game and are also forced uh, in exchange for money to write about it. Yeah. Uh, are you able to experience it as a fan? So I would say it was going, my, my fan enjoyment of baseball was sort of on progressively declining the more time I spent uh, writing about it until recently. I think it's this experience has sort of reawakened it. Um, so I'm able to enjoy it more in that way when I'm going to the stadium and I'm sort of seeing all the fans and all that stuff, I sort of uh, back back in that feeling. Right. Now, you recently mentioned via social media platform, Twitter.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you were at, I, I guess you must have been at the, what, the championship series clinching game for the Cubs? Does that sound right? Sure was, yeah. You um, And you, you wrote something to the effect of that it was, a pleasure to see 40,000 people so happy simultaneously. Indeed. It was great. Kind of, yeah. I kind of, well, here's what I want to ask about. This is, this is, this is, there's a real danger of this being a bad question, right? Because, <laughs> Looking forward uh, to it. Yeah, yeah, there's a real danger that this is just a nothing question. But at the, at the same time, I know that there's something there. Um, and I don't know, A, 
if you know what's there or if it's even possible to know, right? But this experience that I think that I, w- I would say that, that most people upon seeing 40,000 people simultaneously happy, like that, even the most uh, downtrodden or uh, Scrooge-like um, individual is moved by that. And I have to think at some level that that's the reason for sport. Would you or for spectator sports? And does, do, do you weigh in on those grounds, and then I'll get to my even flimsier proposition. So, so let me see if I understand you correctly. You're saying that part of the part of the enjoyment of sports generally is that essentially anyone, no matter how miserable they're feeling, can partake and can feel happier when your favorite team wins. Is that what you're saying? I mean, yeah, I guess it has to be right. It has to be part of it, and, and in part, like, um, well, the, the sort of the the prospect of sport as mere opiate of the masses is another thing. Yes. Um is another consideration I should say. Uh and so that's that's going to probably be a follow up question. Uh but I assume that the that I assume that experiencing pleasure as a community and even really pain as a community, but with the but with the with the possibility that pleasure is in the future, that has to be for the human mind, that has to be one of the objects, right, of of uh, participating in spectator sports as a, as a spectator. I mean, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. It's uh, that feeling of community. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you know what? Because you have some training. Do you have some training? You have some training in some of the hard sciences. I think. I do. One of yeah. the hard. One of the hard sciences. <laughs> yeah, just one. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, which, which one of them is it? Genetics. Genetics. Well, I don't know if that's going to help us. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> there has to be, do you know, what do you know about neurochemistry? Uh, a little bit. What do you know about tra- neurotransmitters? Uh, a bit, yeah. That's part of okay. genetics or, or at oh, least involved. Okay. So when we, so if you attempt to characterize your experience of observing 40,000 happy fans at Wrigley Field. Do you have any tools at your disposal at your disposal for uh for characterizing that in a in scientific terms? Like for example, uh, in the context of what's going on in the brain? Uh that's interesting. I don't know. I'm guessing there's a lot of dopamine going on. Dopamine is usually like associated with happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else would be going on. I mean, it is a peculiar, a peculiar feeling uh, that's kind of unique, at least in my experience. Is I was seeing all this like joy, this communal joy. Um, you know, tribal, you, tribal, tribal, yeah. Tribal's tribal a great joy. word. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great word for it. Um, everyone's wearing the same thing, and yeah, it's it's not like family joy, even though that's kind of a community of a sort. But it's it's different from that. It's these people that you don't know, but you're you're identifying with on the basis of the same tribe. Um, so I don't. I, I think that that must be uh, neurologically unique somehow. I don't know how, but it seems like not subjectively. It didn't feel like other kinds of joy you might feel. And I, I assume this is not a, not a pleasure you've experienced much in your what thirty odd years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it's usually communal sadness with Cubs fans. That's the more typical feeling. Um, so right. that was, but it does not maybe made it more to, poignant. Yeah, and that, but, but the communal sadness, the communal misery. Yeah. Well, so, so multiple sorts of, of, um, of, of poor, of bad feelings, right? 
Yeah. Because on the one end, you have just this sort of th- low throbbing misery, mm-hmm. um, I assume. And then you maybe have another brand, which is um, acute, like, uh, dur- like you know, the sort of the Bartman era uh, playoff team. Right. That's an acute, real. That's a real stinging, dolorous pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. So you've really again at all, but but that also seems to have, uh, have community building influences as well, right? The the communal experience, the tribal experience of of pain as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, especially those those uh, signature moments like Bartman and. I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking of right now, but, uh, like when, whenever the Cubs would come close and then fall short, um, that's, uh, that kind of, uh, traumatic experience that everyone experiences altogether, um, is, is kind of binding in a way. Are you, um, are you going to, are are you afraid uh, of the prospect of the Cubs winning the World Series? Yeah, you know, I am a little bit. Um, I think that uh, the Red Sox were much more lovable and their fan base was much more lovable when they were losing and had the, their, their own oh, little curse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, and I'm worried that the Cubs, who, by the way, already have a fan base with kind of a bad reputation, um, <laughs> they're going to be even uh, even worse after after they win if they win. So, And it's also just like a sort of identity thing. Like at this point... Uh, Part of being a Cubs fan, part of uh, belonging to that tribe, is is some sort of affinity for uh, for the misery and the low level um, sadness that you're talking about. So if that goes away, what is being a Cubs fan? It will change the sort the the deep identity of of Cubs fanness will change. So I'm a little uh, perturbed by that. Yeah, and it's good. I mean, at least in terms of the way that the team has been built i mean to some degree the way the team has been built constructed and the and the identity of the uh um the one who has constructed it i mean the what it's it's the same person it's Theo Epstein it's right. the same person and you know there is um there obviously there's a, there's a sort of aura of i don't think invincibility around him especially because uh you know he left boston under probably something less than the best terms, yeah. but that's again because because the fans in the media in that particular market uh, have a tendency towards the insufferable. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> um, yeah. As I say this as as someone who grew up in it and uh, embodies it, I'm sure fully. Uh, um, I, maybe I don't know if necessarily Chicago has that, but it, but it does have that same sort of uh, devotion. Which, which, um, you know, might, you know, it's, it, the, the sports fans memory isn't particularly long. So even if they win this year, it could be in a situation where if they're only in third place, uh, you know, at the end of next season, uh, it's hard to say if they'll, if they'll remain bearable or if there'll still be a honeymoon period. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent that's already happening. Like there were people literally calling to have Theo Epstein fired or not extended this year every time they'd have a, like a five or 10 game losing streak. And it's like, what's wrong with you people? You know, like I, I don't understand how you could possibly come to that conclusion based on the, the last couple of years. So yeah, I suspect that after, if they do win or even if at this point they're, they're coming very close. So uh, I suspect that there will be some, some sort of backlash, some sort of intensifying of the pressure going forward that will be miserable and wretched to see. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <clears throat> so what will be? Uh, how will you endure that if and when it happens? Well, of course, I mean you may not have to. There's what at this point. Uh, well, with the series shifted back to Chicago, one one in the series. I mean, Chicago probably has roughly a two thirds chance again of winning the series. Does that seem right? Yep, that's or right. Or is it even a little? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so there's a 33% chance or so that you won't have to deal with that. Right. Um, right. Although it is, uh, it is a possibility. Yeah. All right. So, so, it, so right. So back to this idea of pleasure. Um, is there anything, so if you, you understand genetics, um, allow me to ask a question that reveals, uh, my ignorance so far as that field is concerned. Is there anything that's necessarily hardwired into us to prefer Prefer deriving pleasure from our um, from our from our from our uh, fellow tri- tribesmen, as it were, tribesmen and women. Is there anything that's because I assume that living collectively is less dangerous than living um, singly. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything that's sort of that's hardwired into us though, to, where we want to where we want the people around us experiencing pleasure as well? Oh, that's a good question. Um... I, I think that there's probably something to that effect for direct relatives. So there's this concept in genetics of uh, kin selection where essentially uh, it, was, it was famously summarized as I would sacrifice my life for, uh, for what is it, two brothers and four uh, cousins. I forget the exact thing. But the idea is that because your immediate relatives share some of your genes, um, it's worth it to uh, help them survive because – uh, some of the, some of those same genes are going to be uh, some of your same genes are going to be propagated through them. So um, there's definitely some something hardwired to help or to help make us want to um, help our family members. Now whether that extends to you know people in the same uh, tribe that are on, they're not immediately genetically related to us but are just wearing the same colors, I don't know. I mean probably evolution and selection has not had the time to. Uh, adjust to the modern world where we're living in these giant uh, 10 million person cities where most of the people are not related to us. I wouldn't be surprised if if there's some connection between that tribal feeling and that ancient deeper feeling of kin selection when back in the day, everyone in your tribe was pretty closely related to you and maybe that's why you wanted them to do well. There's also probably, and this, I think that this is probably um, a function or discussed to some degree, I've come across it in the field of uh, urban design, um, uh, there, there's a strange thing that happens. There's sort of, sort of a, uh, a population tipping point after which one only feels more alone and more isolated given a certain population density. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has to be, there has to be maybe a sort of sweet spot because when you're talking about forty thousand people, though, that's the masses, right? Yeah. The actual identities of the people do not particularly matter to you, right? Um, and then, but to actually feel like if you're just walking down the street on a normal day, you don't recognize any of them. And so you're essentially just an anonymous part of that. But in this particular case, being a sports fan, like th- there is a certain pleasure in being part of the masses, right? You're sort of a, you're a, you experience the, the, the collective experience of the team winning is always going to influence and heighten the, the personal experience of the team winning. Yeah, that's true. And it was a strange experience for me because I was, I was actually got to go down on the field after the win, and so I was simultaneously there as a journalist and as a fan. So I was both um, part of the mass, but also outside of the mass and sort of chronicling the mass. 
So it was a really odd um, dual feeling where I was both within and outside of the the community that was experiencing all this joy. What would Zizek think about that, do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I know enough about his philosophy to say. What you you educate me? You probably know more than me about this. I don't. I don't really. Uh, but I do know the other day that um, I made a gif of uh, Zizek saying the words "hardcore pornography" in English. So if you <laughs> if you want that, that's can, helpful. Helpful to this discussion. I can send it to you afterwards. No, I don't know what Zizek would say. I assume it would be fantastic. Yeah, um, probably. In terms of the the necessary ingredients to form a the sort of relationship that Cubs fans have with their club. I'm curious for your thoughts on that, okay? Because I assume that age has some, that the age of the team has something to do with the age of the club. And I also have to assume that the trauma does have something to do with it as well. But of course, you know, the Cubs are pretty famously, um, you know, one of the most beloved teams or have one of the most sort of uh, cohesive and wide-ranging um, fan bases. Uh, but if you had to speculate, you know, what do you think would be the ingredients and how would you weight them, I guess? Hmm. That's a good question. If you question. were to come up with an algorithm for its intensity of fandom. So I think a lot of it is the family connections. And I don't know if that necessarily differs very much between, uh, between teams. I suspect it does. Um, so I think that one of the things that really makes Cups fandom strong is that this championship drought has persisted for so long that it's a way to relate between generations. So, for example, my dad remembers a little bit the 1945 World Series, which is the last time they were there, famously. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for all of my life until this point, I have been able to relate to my dad through that uh, that shared experience of the Cubs constantly losing, never making the World Series. You know, he saw it once, and it was remarkable, but that's essentially as close as I had come before this year. So I think that there's something to that, to the um, consistency of the fan experience over time. And over 70 years, it's been essentially the same. And there aren't very many people, or probably any people around who remember the 1908 win. So essentially, Cubs fandom has been relatively consistent uh, going back 100 years, and that's something that can be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so that, I think, makes it a little bit stronger. Also, the fact that it's state, the Cubs have stayed in the same place, in the same stadium, um, and have this kind of common connection to the same neighborhood. Um, I think that's interesting and probably one of the elements that, uh, that binds them together more. Do you um, think that the walkability of the neighborhood at all influences the, uh, the ability to participate in the fan experience? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think that's part of it too, is that it's not just, and this is for better and for worse, but it's not just going to Cubs games is not just like filing into the ballpark and then leaving. There's also this um, shared thing, which is going to bars afterwards and before and experiencing Wrigleyville, um, which is kind of terrible at times, but also interesting at other times. Um, and I think that that walkability, the fact that it's embedded in a neighborhood with its own interesting and unique and long history uh, pro- probably enhances the fan experience. Whereas if you look at like the Dodgers, their stadium is essentially embedded in a parking lot, which is, uh, you know, who cares? That's not a, that's not something that's going to bind people together. Although I believe, uh, third, third, third oldest ballpark at this point, Dodger Stadium. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit disconcerting, I guess, but it was really just, uh, 
Wrigley and Fenway, and then a lot of years uh, between them and the next structure. Right. And I think it's. I think it is Dodger Stadium. Ray, Wrigleyville, you mentioned, <clears throat> that is a. <laughs> it is an interesting na- neighborhood. I assume that over time, as is the case with many neighborhoods, uh, in particular those uh, whose rents have increased um, with celerity, like Wrigleyville, the complexion of the neighborhood has changed. I do know my wife worked at a bookstore. I might have told you this last time we spoke. My wife worked at a bookstore in Wrigleyville, maybe uh, an intersection two south of um, of of the stadium. Okay. Uh, and she related to me one time, it was after an afternoon Cubs game, maybe, uh, of course, many of them are in the afternoon, um, and she saw some guys that I think that would be fair to characterize as bros. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she didn't necessarily understand the the reasons for the fight or even who was on <laughs> whose side, but just in the middle of the street, there was just like a lot of guys with backwards hats and sunglasses just wailing on each other. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, it got broken up somehow or they fell asleep or some passed out <laughs> while they were fighting. And it, they, were, they were whisked away. And she said, but after they left, it was just like um, they were just like flip-flops scattered all over the intersection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which seems to be – that seems to characterize at least uh, one part of that neighborhood's culture fairly well. Yeah, yeah, that remains to this day. Uh, that's a big <laughs> part of the Cubs fan experience. Um, and it's interesting, too, because there's different, I think, constituencies within Cubs fandom. A big part of it are the bros. Um, but then yeah. there's also just, like, longtime Chicagoans, many of whom, you know, might have moved away from the neighborhood or even away from the north side but still maintain the fandom. So there's kind of both the people, uh, a group of people that are really awful and you want nothing to do with and are mostly drunk and fighting each other and puking and that sort of thing. And then there's another group of people that are like reasonable human beings who are looking at that other group and being like, what the hell is wrong with you people? <laughs> well, you know, in terms of uh, – now, of course, as a, for me at least as a, um, as a, as a liberal American, especially white male man, I, I always want to in my heart, I want to inspect my heart for any, uh, any signs of prejudice or bias. And if I, you know, if I find some – uh, then I attempt to ask myself questions about it and sort through it, right? Yeah. But I do – there is one group. There is one demographic of whom I'm scared, and also it's probably not taboo for me to announce that I'm scared of it, and that is young men. Yeah, terrifying. Young men, young men are terrifying between – I don't know. I mean the, between – there's a certain age, maybe like you know, for some young men it's like six, 15, 16, when they begin to reach something resembling physical maturity. Mm-hmm. So they have the – what is essentially like the sort of the strength, a sort of strength that approximates the, the kind possessed by a mature man, but they also don't possess reason. And uh, that lasts, I think, in terms of the population as a whole. Well, I don't know. What's the big – what's the uh, advertising demographic? So like 18 to 34 or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, there's there's so frightening. Young men are – that's actually the only – uh, it's actually the only dem- uh, demographic of which I'm actively afraid. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, uh, regardless of, of race, creed, or um, whatever any other considerations, um, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And it's it's, it's purely because I, I guess because we're talking about like a real, and you might know more about this than me, like a real, like a brain that is actually just functioning differently than most of the populations. Right, right. I think it's especially dangerous for the the teenagers, the uh, 16 to 18-year-olds, because those people are just idiots. 
and as you said, they have the they have the strength of full grown uh, adult men, but they're complete yeah. idiots with undeveloped brains. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's I think there's legitimate reason to be afraid of that group of uh, people. Did you make any? Uh, did you make any bad? De- I mean, I was, not to say that you've stopped making bad decisions, <laughs> but did you did you did you make any particularly bad ones uh, in the, the sixteen to eighteen range, sixteen to eighteen year old range? I uh, I was uh, I, I did a couple of street races. That was really dumb. Uh, late you at night. Were you driving a, like a, like a James Dean street race? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like awesome. I would pull up to a stoplight and there would be like another car there and I'd rev the engine, they'd rev the engine and then we'd just go for, you know, until the next couple stoplights. You know, that's dangerous. It was super dangerous. I mean, it wasn't as dangerous because I was in a very small town in Virginia and at the times when I was doing it, there was essentially nobody else on the street. Um, and you so, also, you probably, was it a, a, like a Volvo with an airbag? <laughs> it was a Honda Prelude, so it was, uh, it was oh, okay. <laughs> slightly fast. Yeah, very yeah, slightly. yeah. yeah. I mean, it was fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not too smart. Um, that's not too smart. No, it was idiotic. <laughs> um, all right. So wh- I, wh- this will add the portion of the um, question of the questioning, the interview, where I ask unanswerable questions. Mm. Does that seem fair? <laughs> sure, sure. We've so. made it this far. I mean, I maybe I'll ask some of them accidentally later on. Okay. But I had I had this I had these thoughts in my head about about the Cubs, and you are a an intelligent person, and b an intelligent person who lives in Chicago. So I thought I might ask you to reflect on them. That's all. Oh, I suppose one last one last concern is um, is this uh, question of the the bread and circus quality of sport or the opiate of the masses. I mean, this is an idea that's existed for some time. What part of you, what, how large a part of you is, a, is, has, is anxious about that, that you are indulging this thing and de- not just indulging it, participating in it, but also you are commentating on it to give others an opportunity, um, to, to think about it, perhaps when they should be doing other things like loving their children or, uh, you know, doing their jobs or whatever, maybe reaching some sort of self-actualization. Um, <laughs> Does this haunt you at all? The fact that uh, you know maybe uh, the, the the possibility. I'm not saying it's definite at all, but the the prospect that sport is distracting us from actually, uh, uh, you know, from from making our own lives better by other channels. Yeah, yeah, that does that does bother me a little bit. Um, I try to make myself feel better about about the whole situation, and I, this is probably just a complete uh, rationalization. So you can tell me if so. But I try and make myself feel better about it by um, essentially believing that uh, the particular brand of analysis that I do is stealthily teaching people about statistics and thus enriching their lives and making them slightly more intelligent than they might otherwise be. Um, and it's sort of cloaked in something that they really do enjoy, whereas if I sat them down and said, here's what regression to the mean means, they would say, go away. Um, so in, in, yeah. in that way, I hope that, that there is some value to the stuff that, uh, you and I are doing in fan graphs and 538 more broadly. Well, don't, don't bring me, don't bring me into this. All right. You don't, have nothing to do with this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is all about you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So also, I don't teach people anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, fair enough. But okay. So, so that's, that's how it is. It's a, it's, there's a, you are, um, you are tricking, a certain group of people into learning something. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's strengthened to some extent by the fact that occasionally a class will like pick up a, one of my articles and they'll use it to be teaching statistics to actual kids and and that's nice. Um, I don't know how often that happens versus when someone's just barely reading the article, skimming to the end for the findings, and then um, usually writing me an angry message on Twitter or in the comments section. Um, that's probably the vast majority of it. But at, I hope that at least some of the, the readership is gaining some valuable or useful or interesting knowledge out of uh, reading my work and not just, uh, not just indulging in uh, some distraction until they die. Right. Well, this is yeah. Uh, this is the this is a conversation I have sometimes with Dave Cameron. We we discuss this matter, right? Where and that that was, of course that was how uh, that that was my introduction to sabermetrics, essentially, or something that uh, uh, attracted me to it originally was because of these um, these sort of the defining concepts, the the introduction of the scientific method to this sport that I already cared for quite a bit and about which I had questions and then answering them in a responsible way uh, was very nice for me in a way that did not, you know, because I grew up, as I said, in the Boston area, listened to a lot of sports talk where it's like four jamokes yelling at each other. And uh, that, that for a little anxious guy like me, that was not very helpful. Uh, But then to read rational commentary was uh, was at the opposite effect, right? It was very soothing at some level because, oh, look, here we are. We're using even tones. This is civil discourse, and uh, we are we're talking about things. We're talking about things in probability, right, in terms of probabilities as opposed to, um, you know, you think Schilling is going to – that's not even a Boston accent. Thank God I lost it. It's, the, um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, uh, do you think Schilling is going to win tonight? And then the answer is yes, right, <laughs> which is not uh, – which is not – this is not how it's not how the world works. But once you start thinking about things of probability, then it's also easier as a person to say, well, in attempting to solve this particular life problem, I think I've I think I used the, the right process. It's just the result was bad. Right, right. right. That's that's a thing that a stealthy thing about analytics writing that I really appreciate is that it is in a way teaching you some valuable life lessons about probability and about, um, you know, what what you should expect and how things don't always go your way and etc. So for example, yesterday, uh, my wife and I were in the kitchen and she saw a bit of discoloration in one corner in the, the ceiling on one corner of the kitchen, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, she just kind of went to, to probe it ever so gently with her finger. And what actually happened was, uh, just touching it very lightly. She, uh, her finger went through the ceiling and down came a little uh, puddle of water that had uh, been uh, that was resting there. Oh, fantastic! Which for the which for the new homeowner is disconcerting. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Congrats, yeah. congrats on your new home, by the way. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, I think actually last time we were speaking, we were talking about houses and titles. Yeah. Did we talk about titles and liens? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was it was on the top of my mind at that point. Anyway, um, yeah. So, but that's disconcerting. But you, it happens, right? And you say this is not good. This is not good. And then you start wondering, how bad could this be? But of course, uh, one doesn't have any control over it at that point. So, uh, you know, entertaining those sort of things is not good. And so what we did was we called the plumber, uh, who was a good plumber. He came over to our house immediately because we live in a small town. He looked at it and he said, well, I can't fix it right now. Um, I, th- I have some rough ideas of what the problem is. I can't come back till next week, but it should be fine for the meantime. You'll just have a small finger-sized hole in your ceiling. 
And they say, well, all right. But but uh, but uh, it, what put me at ease was um, we. I think we followed the correct process. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, you. We could sit here and and I probably part of me does look at it and dread the fact there's a hole in my ceiling and I don't know what the resolution will be. But on the other hand, I say, well, what what can I do about it? This is this is all that can be done unless I become a plumber in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. I think there's nothing that causes me greater anxiety. Uh, than home ownership and dealing with inexplicable things like that and mm-hmm. wondering whether they were in fact foretelling some more serious thing that would happen, like the yeah. entirety of my ceiling falling apart or something like that. Uh, that was, that was, uh, terrible. Um, and, uh. Oh, that's right. You owned a condominium at some point, didn't you? Yes. Well, I still do, but now I have someone in it renting it. And so I guess they can deal with that anxiety until it comes to me. Yeah. And then you and haven't you sort of outsourced care of the the condominium as well? Yes, which is yeah. perfect. Perfect. Great. Great. Good man. <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. live in, and you live in an apartment otherwise. Right, right. I do not live in my condominium. I live in an apartment elsewhere. In so Lincoln Park, good. as we yeah. discussed. Yeah. Let me ask you <clears throat> let me ask you about the bullpen revolution, Rob Arthur. Please. Uh obviously we've seen by the way that uh, I mean Andrew Miller most immediately, uh, but like Kenley Jansen with the Dodgers were still in it, um, that uh, managers have been somewhat aggressive about using their uh, relievers in the, you know, the, um, if not always middle innings, then uh, something slightly earlier than the end of the game, right? Uh, where, what is your prognosis about the, pol- the bullpen revolution? To what degree will it manifest itself in the 2017 season and the uh, the near future after that? So I don't think it will have as much impact on the regular season. Um, there may be cases where um, managers are more aggressive about using uh, ace relievers earlier in the game or at higher leverage moments to lock down leads. Um, but I suspect that an overriding concern in the regular season is fatigue. That's much less of a concern in the postseason where you have so many days off um, and relatively fewer games. So I don't think it'll be as much of a big deal in the regular season. However, I do think it's going to be uh, huge in the postseason going forward. Um, and I think that uh, essentially every team will be looking for someone on their roster that they can turn into that Andrew Miller type uh, fireman, essentially, who can go in and um, take care of a threat before it uh, manifests in multiple runs. Um, so it, it's it's something that'll crop up, I think, every October. Right. Okay. Now, and as as you mentioned, the, the teams will be looking for the for a guy like Andrew Miller. Um, when I spoke with Eric Longenegan recently, he he was quick to remind me, um, and I'm sure that you understand this too. Andrew Miller obviously is his own thing. He has an 80 slider. He throws 96. So there's, you know, that is not, that's not necessarily a pitcher who's coming around, um, every day, right? right? That's, that's a rare, a rare thing. I wonder if you might, I was looking the other day and uh, even uh, found time to write an article about, um, uh, pitchers from baseball history who are used in a way similar to that which Andrew Miller is being used these playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious about this. And so uh, I, the parameters were somewhat liberal, but I was looking for pitchers who had thrown at least 50 innings, although it's possible I could have set the threshold higher, and who averaged – this is all relievers, of course – relievers who averaged more than an inning and a half per appearance, okay? 
So we're looking for someone who's going to be in the game for a while. And then I uh, just found the best pitchers, you know, since the beginning of time uh, by that measure, uh, best relievers by that measure, uh, by war. So I combined the the FIP version of war and then the runs allowed version of war, 50-50 per 100 innings, et cetera. Uh, now, the, the, you might be able to at least teach me. I'm interested in what you know about the, the pitcher who uh, seemed to most resemble – or serve as sort of the uh, spiritual ancestor to Andrew Miller, and that's Bruce Souter. Mm, interesting. Um, Bruce, Bruce Souter's 19 – he was with the Cubs, your team, from 1976 to 1980, and he was particularly effective in 77 and 79. 79, in fact, he won the Cy Young Award. He was worth uh, roughly five wins in 100 innings pitching out of the, the bullpen uh, for the Cubs that year. It's not a Cubs team that necessarily dominated. Right. Um, I think they finished – Fourth or fifth in that 1979 season, um, so it was not the it was not a make it or break it proposition. Uh, he was not enough to lift them to excellence, but that is a that's a really interesting player. And I'm I guess I'm I guess I'm curious uh, what uh, what the sort of what it, what a Cubs fan knows about Bruce Suter and what you could tell me specifically. Very little. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, history is not my strong suit in terms of baseball. Um, I have kind of a vague notion. I had kind of a vague notion that he was on the Cubs and was very good, and uh, was a reliever, and that was mm-hmm. about the extent of my knowledge about him. Right. So he pitched. Uh, I think it was '77. I um, he had a bunch of relief appearance study, but '77 he was worth about five wins as well. Incredible. Um, yeah, and that was in 107 innings. This is the year 1977. He recorded a strikeout rate of over 30 percent. Um, which would be meaningful to you. He had a FIP and ERA minus. So that's the, the index version of FIP and ERA, both under 40. Um, and he he threw those 107 innings in only 62 appearances. Um, so that's over an inning and a half. He <clears throat> that season um, he entered games in four, uh, five different innings: the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth. The the inning that he entered most frequently actually was the seventh inning. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it is really interesting, and uh, and I think that uh, the majority of his appearances that season, um, over half of them, uh, lasted longer than anything. So, in addition to the sort of multi-inning average, you know, the the majority of appearances uh, were also multiple multiple innings. Uh, so this is real. It it really is a version of that. But 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 it sounds like what, from what you're telling me is that Suter does not necessarily have. Um, he doesn't necessarily cast a big shadow uh, in terms of the Cubs history. Oh, it, sh- it should be mentioned an organization that has a lot of kind of uh, uh, legends in it. In yeah, yeah, I, I would say he's not, you know, among the top ten or so is my guess. But uh, like mm-hmm. I said, history not my strong suit. Does this, does this also, conversation does it render what? you more interested in Bruce Suter? It does. I, I am curious about uh, his pattern of usage uh, at that time versus what we're seeing now. That's very interesting. Well, yeah, you're free. In, in fact, actually, if you look at uh, just using those basic parameters, I think like nine of the best eleven seasons came within a ten-year stretch uh, between Suter in '77 and then Calvin Chiraldi in 1986. There was a lot of uh, a lot of pitchers from that era. Who were you were being used in a similar way? 
there was uh, Bruce Suter. There was uh, uh, Goose Gossage uh, appears in this leaderboard four times. Um, of course, he pitched um, he pitched in Chicago and was quite good uh, for the White Sox for a while. Maybe made a late season appearance or late career appearance for the Cubs, but it was not a dominant in that role. Uh, but he was actually quite good as a as a White Sox pitcher, and then of course pitched for the Yankees for a while. Um, anyway, uh, interesting to think about this the 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 reliever as weapon. Yeah. What about Les Lancaster? Do you know who that is? You ever heard that name before? Never even heard it. He had a dominant relief season for the Cubs in 1989. Well, that was the year after I was born, so. So probably less, less knowledgeable about it. Uh, less, less Lancaster. Less Lancaster, yeah. A right-hander, Les Lancaster, uh, in 1989 pitched, read about 73 innings in, in 42 appearances. So, uh, had a, um, an ERA minus of 37. There wow. you go. Yeah. Less. Lancaster, one of the most dominant relief performances in history, and you don't even know him. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Yeah, I should be embarrassed. Yeah, you should be. For for other things besides that, let me ask you uh, about one more matter uh, that's not the bullpen revolution, and that is uh, some recent work you've done on the NBA, and uh, in particular analytics in front, uh, NBA front offices. This is something you did with Ryan Watt? Correct. So you say his name. Can you tell me about the, the genesis of this study? Uh, yes. Well, um, a few months ago, Ben Lindbergh and I had worked on a piece to sort of quantify the same thing, which is sort of the explosion in analytics personnel, but in baseball. So we had uh, scraped some team web pages to look for analytics personnel, and we'd gone and checked with various teams, and we basically came up with an exhaustive list of all the analytics personnel that had worked for various MLB teams at different times and found that it was, as expected, uh, really exponentially increasing since about 2008, and that the teams that had picked up analytics personnel earlier had done better later, uh, much better. Um, so that was kind of remarkable, and we were wondering, uh, Ryan and I were wondering whether we could sort of apply the same stuff to basketball, which was the, the idea for the piece. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, with regard to the piece that you did for that you did with Ben, um, now, is this uh, some of this is I don't know if it's necessarily pr- proprietary information, but it's not all freely available. I was I would assume, or is it just all from the websites? Or are you are you even like looking at statistical interns? Uh, we didn't consider interns. Um, we only considered full time personnel. Um, okay. And the stuff that we used was yeah all from uh, all from uh, Real GM and the team web pages. So it's all publicly available. We just sort of went to the effort of putting it all together. And so, what uh, I guess what 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 percent of teams now are employing analytics in a serious way? Is it I mean, is it thirty out of thirty that have at least uh, dipped their toes in the water to some degree? Yeah, all thirty teams in the NBA now have uh, at least one. Well, well I mean, even mean baseball. I'm let's still I'm still on baseball. I believe yes, everyone in baseball, every team in baseball has some analytics presence. Okay. Um, so yes, yeah, it's. it's it's getting to a point where it's essentially mandatory to run a front office to have uh, some analytic stuff. Okay, and then with, so with regard to basketball too, uh, we we find that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, how does it manifest itself? Uh, uh, obviously, I mean, some of baseball because um, uh, the nature of the game. Uh, I mean, this is not new information, but um, nature of the game. It's easier to quantify certain things. Um, 
until you get to questions in particular fielding, I think, um, it becomes more difficult. Uh, basketball is, I believe, an invasion sport. That may or may not be true. And therefore, um, I know at least the articles I've read about Daryl Morey, there's a lot going on with cameras. I mean, what, how does it manifest itself so far as you can tell? So it's one of the interesting things that we found is that actually the impact of analytics was greater uh, in basketball than it was in baseball. So what we found for, for basketball was that the early adopting analytics teams had an eight-win-per-year advantage. So if you consider that the uh, basketball season is substantially shorter, it would be something like a 16-win advantage in MLB. Uh, and what we found in looking at MLB, Ben and I, was that there was only something like a four-win advantage. So in comparison, it's a much more significant uh, advantage in basketball. And I think that that is partially because of how little was known about basketball prior to this current analytics revolution. Um, baseball has always been pretty good about collecting a lot of stats and keeping a lot of data. And Bill James, of course, has been around for a long time. So there was there was kind of less low-hanging fruit, I think. Um, and in basketball, they also have a camera tracking system that's similar to StatCast. It's called SportVU. And that came online relatively recently. I don't know the exact year, but it came online relatively recently. So having a pre-existing analytics capacity when that data first started flowing uh, would probably have been extremely helpful to to uh, utilizing it more more uh, uh, utilizing it to to better advantage your team. Um, with Statcast, of course, we have that data, but it's still kind of in a preliminary state right now, and and that has a lot to do with. Um, just how much more difficult it is to track objects like a basket, or a baseball compared to a basketball in a much larger space. So I think that uh, in comparing the two, basketball had uh, a lot more knowledge to gain, and they also had a, a, a data stream from SportView that was much more usable immediately. So that allowed the analytics teams to essentially grab a lot of advantages very quickly. Um, That's interesting. You mentioned too that that the those organizations which already had um, a well-established analytics team would be able to adapt to the new SportsView data more quickly. Because I assume they have someone who can, uh, you know, build a database and run queries, et cetera. Is the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's uh, what for the teams that have adapted or have adopted or most aggressively adopted an, analytics? What are typically the signs? I know that uh, the article, this is, I mean, this could be a decade ago. The article, though, that uh, Michael Lewis wrote about Shane Battier and Daryl Morey and the, the Rockets, right? And like an early sign of of um, having adopted an analytical approach to the game was the corner three. And I think like the Spurs are kind of famous for the corner three as well. Yeah. And um, they've been a progressive organization. What what are some indications that that teams uh, are following uh, some sort of uh, analytically derived strategy? Yeah, so that's actually one of them. One of the ones that we looked at, not specifically the corner three, but simply three point shooting in general. The three point shot has uh, gone from I think eighteen per game to something like twenty four per game in the most recent season. And the teams that really spearheaded that increase were the analytics ones. And they've also had an increase in accuracy of those three-point attempts. So they've uh, they've essentially um, gotten much better. They're shooting many more threes, and they've gotten much better at shooting those threes. So that was one hallmark. Another hallmark was in terms of their rebounding. Um, and another thing was in terms – so they, they just were better at rebounding than the uh, other teams. Another thing was that they actually took fewer 
um, free throws than um, the non-analytics savvy teams. So I wasn't sure quite what to make of that, but it, it was interesting generally that there are these clear strategic hallmarks of what a analytics savvy team would do. It's sort of, I think where basketball at, is at or was at five years ago is sort of where baseball was at in the Billy Bean, uh, you know, money ball era with like, oh, hey, maybe we should think about OBP that maybe that's the more important stat to focus on. Mm-hmm. And similarly, it's basketball was essentially like, hey, you know, three point shots are worth more than two point shots. And if we, uh, if we focus on getting players who can effectively shoot three point shots and shoot many of them, our team will overperform. Um, so like I said, in comparing the two sports, it's, it's like that low hanging fruit was available fairly recently, like four years ago. Um, but in baseball, even that had been taken, you know, more than a decade. I wonder if, uh, and perhaps you know the answer, with regard to, cause you said the, the accuracy of three-pointers has increased. Well, when you, when you say that, to me, I have, a, um, a few ideas. One is, um, that teams are, <laughs> maybe teams are telling the players uh, who should be shooting more and who should be shooting less. They're more clear about it. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps they're actually playing for a three-point shot, whereas maybe in years past, it was like essentially the last option with the shot clock winding down. Right. Um, uh, and, and, uh, or perhaps uh, it's just a question of practice. I don't know. I've, did, did you unlock any of that or is that, uh, is that purely for a matter of conjecture at this point? I, I like that idea. Um, I didn't do any work on that for this initial piece. We're hoping to do more follow-ups on it, but I, I bet you're right. I bet that there's like a more uneven distribution of three-point attempts now. Uh, in that the best shooters are getting more of the three-point attempts and the worst shooters are being told not to take them. Um, I bet that's happening. Uh, so that would be, that would be really interesting. And of course, that's something that does, there's no equivalent of essentially in baseball. You know, you have to, you have to bat when it's your time to the order. You can't just say like, you're a light hitting shortstop. You take this one off and we'll give the first base. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get some, we'll get someone in for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would, be, yeah, that's just, well, it, that's a real also in addition to the nerds who would be occupying a place uh, as part of an analytics team in the front office i i think always of the 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 best three point shooter on a team he's like the nerd of the basketball team right <laughs> yes well because like it doesn't really require any doesn't require a great feat of athleticism i mean obviously there are players who are athletic who also shoot threes but um if if it could be a situation where if a play is actually specifically run for you, um, as long as you're coming off a pick correctly um, or someone else has performed ably to get you the ball in an open space, then you all you have to do is hit the shot. Like la- latter-day Ray Allen was not the, uh, the – I mean he was rather fit, but I don't think he was very athletic. Kyle Korver certainly is not famous for his athleticism, and yet uh, they probably have an outsized influence um, or, you know, they probably had an outsized influence on the outcomes of the, those games. I really like that idea. I think there's there's a clear parallel there too to OBP, right? I mean, essentially getting a walk is not a feat of strength. It's a feat of hand-eye coordination and knowing where the ball is going to go around the plate. And so it's the same thing with with the three-point shot, right? You're not you don't have to be exceptionally strong to be an accurate three-point shooter. You just have to be able to move your limbs extremely precisely in such a way as to get the ball through the basket from a further distance. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, it, I, well, I was, uh, I lived in Portland, Oregon during <clears throat> some of the Blazers interesting years with Marcus Aldridge and Brandon Roy went back mm-hmm. when Roy was mostly healthy and they had two, well, they had a, a few players that I really loved, but one of them was Rudy Fernandez. 
Oh, I think maybe set the rookie record for three-pointers made. And then they also had James Jones for a short time. Uh, and James Jones, I don't know if he possessed any other basketball skills except for the fact that uh, <laughs> he could hit a three-point shot. And he's played for some good teams. Now, I say he's played for some good teams. Maybe he's part of the reason why they're good uh, because of the efficient shooting. Um, chicken and egg, one would have to say right. about that. I've also, you mentioned the lack of free throws among the teams winning. Now, now this at a certain level that's counterintuitive, right? Because uh, players who produce a high true shooting percentage, uh, part of the reason they tend to do that is because, well, of course, when you get to the foul line, you you know you're you're shooting seventy percent usually. I mean, or seventy five percent or eighty. You know, it, right? It's usually quite a high percentage you're converting. Yeah. But I wonder also if there is an inverse correlation with turnovers because frequently players are having to uh, shoot in traffic. And if they've gotten themselves into traffic, they're, they tend to be more susceptible to turning the ball over. I wonder if there's some inverse correlation there. That's interesting. Again, another thing to uh, investigate. Are you a basketball fan, Carson? Is that what's going oh, on? I, I, I have been uh, a, a pretty big basketball fan at points. Uh, yeah. Huh. Uh, Very yeah. interesting. At well, points, you, you yeah. have some good ideas, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Now, yeah, I don't follow it quite as closely now, but certainly when I was living in Portland and uh, during, I mean, grad school was the best. Studying, uh, uh, studying, uh, going to an MFA program. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I was able to do everything except, I mean, I didn't, you know, it's just poetry. It's not that hard. <laughs> you, just, you just write, you write a little bit, and then you're done. And then you can just go watch basketball. Well, go watch it. And that's well, that's how I uh, when I learned about Microsoft Excel. And I got really into importing data. Ah, yeah. interesting. Right. Yeah. So, so your true calling here is, is as a basketball analyst, not so much a, a baseball analyst. So no, I don't think that it, as an analyst, analyst would be a strong word. In either. <laughs> okay. Having a vague notion of uh, what wins games, I guess. Uh, what was the last thing you said? You said bulk, bulk, wait, balls, balls of shooting. I wrote down a note that just said balls of shooting. <laughs> Did you say that at all? Did you yeah, say something about like balls something of shooting? Did, yeah, balls of shooting, yeah. Oh, they got better at shooting. That's right. Yeah. Well, we sort of covered that, I suppose. Um, the, the three-pointer was, was the uh, the three-pointer was the sign of it. I don't know. Um, so those, those, I guess, are the outcomes. Um, but I guess it's it's harder to know about the processes, right? Because um, it seems as though a lot of the, the data in basketball is proprietary. You sort of see the outcomes of it. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, SportVU is now completely proprietary, and you have to pay some insane amount of money to get any access to it through a third company, a third-party company. Um, I'm really hoping that's not what will happen with StatCast, and it doesn't seem to be. Um, you know, we're still getting to see the fruits of the StatCast data, and even being able to download it in bulk and play around with it. But um, that's another another interesting parallel and, and sort of a cautionary tale for baseball is that. SportVU is, uh, was briefly available to the public and was amazing, and I think a lot of people learned a lot of stuff about it, and then it sort of went away, and um, now we know that the teams are probably having, have this incredible resource, but we can't see it um, as basketball fans. Do you think it would be, say say the Cubs, um, you, you remind me about this, about you know, some, some teams are using this data better than others, and of course uh, the teams that are using the data, they're inherently more interesting, I assume, to you, to me. Uh, because you say, well, that's that's uh, that's the way to do it. That's how you do it. Um, say the circumstances for the Cubs were, in terms of the their current their current situation, you know, in the World Series for the first time since the 1940s. 
uh, having just won a game. Very exciting, all that, right? And all the all everything leading up to it. If they were not, if they were not, ex, if they were not necessarily led, however, <clears throat> by a progressively minded front office, um, would you be as excited about the team, despite the fact that you know this is this is the club for which you cheer anyway? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think I would not be as excited about the team. I think that's one of the appeals of the team, at least for me, uh, is that they have this fantastic front office that seems to be on the cutting edge of all of the metrics and statistics and analytics that I care about. So uh, it's it's cool to see that as a way of building this incredible team. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, these are all the uh, dumb questions I was going to ask you. Uh, you've basically fulfilled your obligation anyway, Rob Arz. It's been almost an hour. I'm sure... That you did not want to talk for that long, but I appreciate your uh, appreciate your endurance, and I appreciate your. But there's a word I'm looking for, it's something like kindness. Well, I appreciate your kindness, I guess. <laughs> something like kindness. I think I'll just use kindness. Yeah, sure. it's something <laughs> like kindness. Well, it's going to be like tolerance. That's not exactly what I meant, though. Um, you have tolerated it anyway. It's been fine. I think it's been fine, don't you? Yes, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Carson. Do you think I left out anything big? Uh, I don't know, like the state of the world, uh, careening towards apocalypse, something like that. But no, no, we're fine. Yeah, doesn't every generation feel like that though? Yeah, but not every generation has this presidential election. So, I don't there know. Has, I don't know well, if there have been more. I'm sure there have been. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm willing to know. I'm still recording, just so you know. Okay. Um, uh, but the, here's what I want to know. Right, because yes, there are, there are apocalyptic signs. <laughs> yes. And yet in some ways the world is safer than ever. Is that true? Yes. In some ways, yes, and in some ways no, which I guess has probably been the case throughout history. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I guess so, yeah. But I'm sure the crazy George Wallace won a lot of the South uh when he ran for president. Do you know George Wallace? Yes, the segregation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's well, I don't that's think that's true. That's a dark moment in our history. Yes. Although, you know, I mean, the, the thing about modern history, uh, is, is the presence of nuclear weapons. And, uh, that's, that's a truly existential threat for the human race, right? And so whenever a nuclear armed country has people in charge of it that are crazy or stupid enough to entertain their use, um, that automatically vaults the danger of the human race uh, to a much oh, yeah. higher level. Where's the best place to live in case of uh, nuclear winter? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe somewhere tropical on the theory that it will not get as cold. Uh, oh, yeah. But also someplace where you're not likely to get bombed. So I think Chicago is probably not great for that. I think we'll probably get hit. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Do you think it would be? Do you think it would be like a blow to Chicago's ego if it, if it weren't targeted? <laughs> I do. I think that would be really, really. That's a dark thought. It's a dark <laughs> thought. But there's something there. It's like a city, a city that that could, that has at, at points or continues to consider itself important. Maybe has been important. Uh, yeah, yeah. That uh, that's be, that's not targeted. Yeah, that would be that would be sad. But uh, also, you get, you'd get a big chuckle out of it right before dying, maybe. <laughs> right, right. Dying out of the well, I guess the, and the the problem with the nuclear winter, right, is it's sort of more of a systemic. Yeah, it's not like you're not. It's not like you're it's the radiation you're getting. It's that the sky is full of the sky is full of material. Yeah, yeah. And you don't see the sun. 
Right, right. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be great at all. I recently read in the uh, scientific periodical Down East, the magazine of Maine, <laughs> okay. um, about uh, a winter. No, it was a summer, a summer that never came, the summer that never arrived. It was somewhere at some point in the middle of the 19th century, I believe. Was that and because the, of what Krakatoa? Was it one of the big I volcanoes? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was a big volcano somewhere. Yeah, and uh, there was no summer. And uh, no one could grow any crops. Uh, luckily, it wasn't uh, as, as terrible here because uh, of all the fishing, you know, how there's uh, seafood and everything. Yeah, yep. Uh, but probably, but probably it was rough at other places where you didn't have that option. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, what did that did that probably happen? <laughs> that didn't just happen in Maine. No, that happened basically worldwide. It was 1883. I'm looking this up now. Um, Krakatoa exploded, and there was sort of like a mini. Uh, nuclear winter in that there was so much junk blown out of the volcano that it kind of uh stopped the uh or altered the seasons essentially for uh worldwide. Excuse me, I'm I know you're a scientist, I'm just a layman, but junk blown out is that the uh is that the, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the technical term that you have to That's the verbiage? Yep, yep. Junk blown out. That's uh that's how it goes. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> uh all right. I guess uh, yeah, let's say goodbye. All right. Does that feel good? Does that feel good? Anything? Yeah. You don't need to confess anything on record before we go. I already confessed to my street racing, so yeah, I'm good. All right. All right. All right. Well, let's say so. Let me begin the end by saying thank you, Rob Arthur. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Say so that. I'll say uh, that has been Rob Arthur of, um, of of many places, I presume, but definitely 538 and and Vice. Does that sound right? Indeed. Yeah, Rob Arthur, 538 and Vice. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.